there's several passages in scripture that tie to right doing we understand the good baptismal step and we understand right doing i have to confess that it's kind of a difficult task to answer that is navigating whether it be trying to honor Mother's Day and Father's on Mother's Day and Father's Day, or honoring our fallen military on Memorial Day weekend, or honoring our country's ancestors on June 25th, July 4th. Part of the problem is how often it seems to me that people feel thing that we are celebrating or looking to celebrate. So we end up having people that feel outside that we've missed the celebration that we're trying to have. And I have to say it's much more than that. The problem in seeing the attendance that often exists, that I would say typically exists, whether we're aware of it, whether we are aware of it or not, between the values of our principles of our faith, often the two get conflated or blended, and somehow we act as if they are synonymous, and they are not. So let me up front just confess and acknowledge that as a child, I'm guessing most of you here know me as a child who has no vocation to be out here preaching. Maybe I've looked at you thinking about this nod, and you probably know that I don't play guitar. But I also don't play guitar. And I will say that some of my biases are shared by my colleagues up here, but there are other areas where we come from very, very different backgrounds to something like this and other issues that would make being on staff incredibly difficult or say that I I love where I live. I'm proud of this country. I'm proud of my state. I'm proud of my city. When I'm out of the country, I look forward to coming back. When I'm out of town, I sure can't wait to get home. I'm glad that I live in a democracy where the laws are determined by the people, not the billions that decide what the laws are. I, I'm a fan of capitalism. As long as it's bounded by the laws that protect the rights of human beings and those who are part of that community, but I want to be very clear with you, those biases are not supported by Scripture. Not my biases. Nowhere in Scripture can I find support of democracy, nor even of religious upbringing. There's not a treatise or a template in Scripture for a systematic analysis of democracy. From my limited perspective, the closest Scripture comes to an endorsement of a political system is either a theophany, where God is the Son, and supported by scriptural statements such as, I will be your God, and they 
Elisha refuses them all. However, Gehazi is Elisha's helper or servant. He sees this as a wonderful economic opportunity. And let me be clear, politics and economics are intimately this story, again, Naaman, the commander, has leprosy. He gets angry. This is the first interaction with Elisha the prophet. He's angry for a number of reasons. Elisha instructs that they be sent down to Israel, that they simply go wash in the Jordan. This will take care of it. He's angry for the most interesting reason. He's angry that Elisha didn't come down to his place of residence. He's angry that Elisha didn't perform some appropriate ritual over him. He's even angry that Elisha sends him to the Jordan River instead of the Damascus River in order to get there. Elisha has done everything that is politically important. interesting side note in the story is that those that seemingly the least savvy in this story are both heroes in several versions end up being the heroes of the story. It's a great reminder to me, a wonderful encouragement that we ought to engage in those areas that are our invisible gifting. Most of us that means we engage locally. We are voice history, assume that everything he does is legitimate. 
this gets worse or is magnified if we continue to operate with arrogance or corrupt. It becomes difficult sometimes to discern those types of actions that actually come from Christ. The second extreme is passive indifference with hypocrisy. Oh, you know this. You have all the armor. You have leprosy. You sense in the king of Aram, the king of Israel. The king of Israel, paranoia, mixed with power, projects on commanders all of the worst that could possibly be given to them. Hatred attracts every feeling. The king of Israel perceives it as being taunting, bullying. It's on the verge of saying this is an act of war. What is this projection of all that's inside the king of Israel onto this person who is simply passive? But that's our tendency. Therein lies the problem with politics. It's so often dehumanizing to the other. It pushes them into categories. Categories of religion or other faith or nation. Political figures have families. They struggle with conflict. Hindered by illness. They care for their children. They work around their own disabilities. They are still learning. They have limited knowledge, and each one of them has unique sets of skills. They are human. Creation of how to feel hurt or feel pride or fear, just like every other person. And this this kingdom of Judah. Now, Elisha, in his work, prophetic work, uh, was in the northern kingdom of Israel. This happened to be Samaria. Further in this story, in, in the other prophecies, we see, particularly in the book of Jeremiah, an apostate, uh, a simi- similar political indication in Paul. Jeremiah writing to a people who have been devastated and have been exiled from their homes, from their customs, from the very places that help construct and form their identity, the places that they call home. They've lost that. They've not only have had those places destroyed, but now they live in the place the the nation state that conquered them, the enemy, the people that have been the other, the people that are totally conquered. They live in a place that are, they aren't Christians. They don't know the Christ. They don't know the Lord. They they ha- don't have the same freedom to, to worship the same thing. The, the temple that they have gone to 
to worship has, has been destroyed and now they're at a loss for their worship practice. And in the 29th chapter of Jeremiah, I would uh, invite you to turn there if you have a copy of the Bible. It's physical form on the screen. So the prophet Jeremiah sends a letter to the people who is remaining in Jerusalem, this a remnant that is there. He sends this letter to the royal authorities and the generals and the administrators and the king who has now been exiled and now living in Babylon. He gives them a word from the Lord. And he says this in verse 5. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens. Meet what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives and have sons and have daughters in your land. It is they too who will have sons and daughters. Increase your number. Do not decrease. In the midst of feeling lost, in the midst of feeling like they're not at home, in the midst of feeling like they are foreigners in a foreign land, the word of the Lord that comes from Jeremiah is build your houses, be present, build things, build homes, construct, grow gardens, continue to have children, have your children have more children, build your families, marry your families, settle the land, be in and amongst the people in that land. Because he then says this, seek the peace and prosperity of the city in which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you will prosper. God commands this exiled people to dig in, to confess, to engage in a local community for the overall peace, the overall shalom of their city, of their culture, of their political says, build buildings, care about the construction, have those buildings reflect shalom, have those buildings reflect the presence of God in the world, wholeness. And you see, peace isn't just about not having violence, it's about wholeness. It is heaven on earth, is what Jeremiah is writing. Participate in your community, bringing heaven to earth, the wholeness of God's created order. And not just in this abstract metaphorical way, but in concrete ways. Build buildings that are shalom. Care about building codes. Here's what Jeremiah is saying to them. Build and grow gardens. Care about the food supply that is in your city. Your children marry and grow families. Care about the education and the growth and the life that you're creating. Here in this city that you are living in, seek the peace of the city first. Because your prosperity is the prosperity of the city in which you live. The peace that you are invited into is the peace of your city, the wholeness of your city. It is not just an abstract idea. It is concrete, vocational work. That's the beautiful thing about this is it's not just like 
okay, we get to participate in God's shalom, God's peace in this spiritual way. No, like here in this passage in Jeremiah, he's recommending the people be peacemakers in the way that they live their lives. Their vocational work is not just doing ministries in an abstract way. It's being peacemakers in the lab, being peacemakers on the construction site. See that? This is an overall localized understanding of peacemaking. And that is deeply spiritual. Luke goes on to say, in anticipating the people saying, yeah, but you know what? What about us Gentiles? What about us in the South? Like, we, we've been promised this land. We're in Israel. So, but what if I don't see actually the goodness, the peace that we're talking about here? Jeremiah says, don't assume. Don't try to hit the objective. Just engage in what you're doing. Because this, verse 10, when 70 years are completed from ba- for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Usually we skip all that nitty-gritty, concrete engagement where they're like, yep, we have a promise for you. Yes, and it's about vocal, concrete, vocational engagement. Some of the political bodies that we sit in, communities that shape us and form us, that we have our daily lives in. Caring about making peace with our neighbors, not just the broad national picture, but our focus groups, our potlucks, where we get resources. These are the types of political issues that Jeremiah is engaging with. Because then he he adds this. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found. This political engagement, this communal engagement, is where we find and worship God. It's it's not this abstract place of faith. It's engaging in the life of our community, seeking the peace, seeking the shalom, the wholeness where we live in a very nitty-gritty way. In the ways that we commonly engage in working together. And I think this is what some might call holy resistance. In the same way that Elisha, in the passage, doesn't come out of his house, he's formally politically correct, doesn't bow to the power of Naaman, king of Ammon. And yet, he perseveres, gets in the direction he feels to find God. And yet, resisting that power complex, resisting the economic gain that might come from kneeling to the commander of the army. The same way, Jeremiah is calling the people to persevere. Be in the city. Seek the peace of the place that you live in, with the people that are totally foreign to you, that you do not disagree with, that you might see as your enemy. Wholeness and peace together, knowing that the ultimate peace 
the ultimate purpose, the ultimate goodness of God. And this has always resisted resisting the Messiah, resisting the dehumanization of God's people. And with an unchanged mind, that As I was considering what I might bring, because it's my first podcast, um, I wanted to talk about a pretty specific issue that we have to look at, which is that more than any other time in our nation's long history, we are clinging with like clenched, unopening fists to our party line. And I, and I suspected that this was true, that this is like the most we've ever done this in our nation's history, so I went to the good and faithful Pew research center and asked if I'd ever do it. I found them when I was doing my thesis research. They did not fail me then. They didn't fail me now. I am right. More than any other time in our nation's history, we are deeply divided along our party line. And I found as I was looking at a bunch of different surveys that have been done this year, even, that a startling majority of Democrats believe hands down that Republicans are closed-minded and cutthroat of all of us. And that a startling majority of Republicans believe that Democrats, all of them, are immoral. So we're talking about selfishness, immorality, arrogance, these traits that we just give into this large group of people. And just like that, the other side from us then has nothing to say. They're they're closed-minded. And so if my party is the good one, we've got it right. Dare I say, we think that our party is the holy party. Well, then that means surely that there's nothing good. There's nothing redemptive, helpful, or even true about the other party. So I was listening to a podcast this last week, and they were digging into an extremely hotly contested political debate. And it was a panel of very thoughtful Christians who were trying to look at both sides and move beyond a place of one against the other, but that's the way that this issue and lots of issues like it are always framed, that it's one side against another. And as they looked into the values of the left, why the right was fighting the way that it is, they were finding these deeply, like absolutely Christian values guiding that fight. And as they looked into the left's perspective, they found the same thing that there were these deeply Christian, great values guiding that fight. And on the right, deeply democratic values, and on the left, deeply democratic values. And the aha light bulb that went off for me is so simple but so profound that the answer does not lie solely in one party, that both these groups are bringing to the table values that are important to them. And that the solution for that political issue or any political issue that we're facing lies in this marriage of values that each side cherishes. And it will require a creative, unifying, let's link our arms together and do this movement that pulls in the best of what each has to offer to really move down the road. But even as I say that lovely sounding thing, the thing you say when you're preaching about politics, (laughs) 
I'm like, yeah, right. I mean, I'm cynical and I'm skeptical that that's possible. And I think that's because we, I mean, I think we, I really mean myself included, we, are constantly being seduced by the idolatry of believing that our party is the best. It's not just a problem for us, it's a problem in every political system in every community around the world. That when we come to defend our political party as viewers as the best side, the morally right side, this is a pretty easy jump then to it's God's fault. And that's a very, very short jump to saying our political party is bad. Whether we say that outright or not, it's a really subtle movement that we're always sort of camping out. And this extreme rigid partisanship that we are experiencing now, that we will see now, I fear that it's making me and it's making us better U.S. citizens and Christians. When our loyalty to our side overrides our judgment to actually look at those two potential roles, to actually choose the best from both or other sides, to look for our values that are present on both sides, or to do an even harder thing, which is to perhaps conceive of a totally third way of looking at something, not just two sides. That whole third way of looking at something is very classic Jesus. He is king of this kind of thing. Over and over again, we find stories in the Gospels of Jesus showing us the danger of getting myopic and stuck in our side. And he shows us this liberating way of rising above both so that we can see the landscape that holds both sides. Now, Jesus can do this because he simultaneously is God. So that's helpful, right? Yes. But also, because he's part of the Trinity, he talks often about being connected to God, creator God. He keeps us remaining in God. By doing that, he seeks a wisdom that goes beyond. And he's actively looking for the third way solution that came from God. God, the creator force that made the whole world for whom these problems are solvable, are move throughable. And the amazing thing is that Jesus promises us quite emphatically that that power that he taps into for that creative third way thinking is available to us as well. He said an even greater miracle to us. So often we see this lived out in the way that Jesus deals with the political and the religious leaders of this day and the questions that they asked him. So often they would ask these questions that are binary in nature, questions that have a this or that kind of answer, a yes or a no response. And so Jesus, often when he's talking with these leaders who are very much religious and political all at the same time, given that culture, that was like two and the same. Jesus, rather than answering, giving their questions, tends to give something like, Thank you for that, but no thank you. And here is the different and better question you should have asked. This is like a Jesus move, through and through. Now Matthew 12 gives us a chance to see Jesus at work here. And it's, it's around um, issues regarding the Sabbath. So the Pharisees, remember these political religious leaders, they approach Jesus. 
they're already parroting his words. But they ask him, Jesus, is it lawful to pick and eat grain on the Sabbath? That is a yes or no question. It's a pretty easy question. Is it lawful to pick grain and eat it on the Sabbath? Instead of playing into the yes or no, Jesus just goes on this beautiful speech about mercy. And then, not that long after that, Pharisees approach him again, and they say, Jesus, is it lawful to heal someone on the Sabbath? This again, yes or no, black or white. And instead, Jesus goes on and talks about the nature of good and what it looks like to do good. He's sort of like, Pharisees, your questions, your black and white way of seeing things is totally mystical. So I want to do something more interesting. Let's do something that's maybe a little more valuable, not as beautiful. But living this way, this sort of Jesus third way, choosing the best of what both sides or neither side has to offer, that means that without a doubt, we have to be encountering and engage with knowing people on the other side. We've got to bump up against them. So taking us back in time, the weekend of the 2016 presidential election, I was driving here to church on a Sunday morning, and I had tears streaming down my cheeks. And it wasn't necessarily because of the outcome of the election per se. What I was feeling emotional about was that I was completely at a loss of what to stand up here and say when I would give the welcome that morning to you all. I was at a loss of what to say, but I was certain that we needed to say something. Our nation was in upheaval. If you recall, Facebook was like this wild west of rant and emotion. And it was so obvious in just that weekend that this political rift was getting starker and bigger than it ever had before. And it was a morning that I remember praying these exact words to God. I do not want to be a public moral authority today. Not today. I wish I was like an engineer today. I don't want to stand up and have some wise thing to say because I don't want to be judged. And so I park and I get out and I step on our grounds and as soon as I stepped on said grounds, I felt the Holy Spirit just say this. Just a very simple, simple word of encouragement. Mercy. Tell them, tell your people that they already have what they need. They have what the world needs. And as I sat with that, became clear to me. It was one of the most profound moments in the ministry of my life so far in Christ. God began to unfold for me in that moment that you, we already hold the keys that a fractured political system needs because you all gather alongside every week, sit around tables with whole the babies of care for at baptism, sit around the board election table, vote for board members, study the Bible with, this collection of people that you didn't necessarily choose, people who think and vote and process very differently than you. And I will say that this is not exactly true of every church, that there is massive ideological um, difference, but I agree from all accounts, this church is massively ideologically diverse when you consider all the people that make up this congregation. And that, to me, is the single greatest gift of Christianity, that we are so different. We differ, but you work hard to not allow arguments about, say, abortion 
or immigration or welfare rights or any other issue to define us. Instead, you need Jesus to be defined by our mission, which is to lift up Jesus. And that commitment to something higher than a side or an opinion, that commitment is what the world really needs. Good listening. The root word in political, when you break down political, is polis. And polis means simply a body of people acting in its highest form. Political life, then, essentially is life of the people. And considering political life from this perspective, church is one of those last ones standing. Civic organizations like Voting You and Lions Club and Losing Commonwealth. Things like CTAs and Saving Ray, neighborhood organizations against AIDS, Rich Communities. Church is one of those very few spaces left where you are just kind of thrown together in a mix of people that you didn't necessarily choose from different walks of life with different stories all across the age spectrum, holding varying degrees, but united around a common mission. And here, that mission is that we seek God together. And without denying the differences or disagreements, we tell the truth about those things. But without denying those things, we commit to love each other well and to love the world well. Our common mission life is our political life. It is us living as one body of people acting in God's highest form. Being here, staying connected to each other, is actually a pretty radical At a time in U.S. history where we are gathering and collecting in like-minded groups more than we ever have before, right here, right now, in this church, we have the opportunity to really get to know someone from the other side of the aisle. To, as Dee said a moment ago, to humanize someone we might say is a political opponent of ours by getting to know their kids, by visiting them in the hospital, painting a wall with them at service day, sitting next to them on the border tour, asking them good questions, asking them hard questions, and really, really listening to how they question and caring about the story behind it. And so this morning, let us take a radical political step together. Let us participate in communion, this ritual that binds us as a people. It's a practice that reminds us that we follow our master and savior, Jesus, It's a practice that invites us to consider once again the great love of God. It's a practice that encourages us to bring our true selves to God in gratitude and in repentance. This act that we do together tells us once again that God is God and we are not. And that God will move in and among us for the sake of our friends, for the sake of our neighbors, and for the sake of our world. I don't know if all of you were here just the uh, worship session where Justin encouraged us to notice that we weren't strangers. What a powerful privilege it is to come to Table of Grace and to realize that we are not alone, that we are collected together in communion, doing the hard, hard work of communion. The invitation to the table is an invitation to love. It simply is a request that we recognize the sacredness of what it means to be at the table. We're not asking to be a member of this church or to be at your particular seat. We're asking to be at the table. 
time of excuses don't add up to anything but you're setting your table and you offer me a seat we break your bread and drink your wine and dine like family and I Drawing me closer to you. Lord, my soul is weary. It ain't up for a fight. Condemned by the darkness, but washed in the